My name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Chicago Church. It's a pleasure to introduce Advent in the homily this morning. The Christian calendar begins a new year today. Anybody ready for a new year? Amen. We are, aren't we? Ready for a new year, a new beginning. The church year begins with a season we call Advent, which comes from the Latin for He is coming. He is coming. Today the theme is hope. Last week I used a quote from a theologian, um, uh, uh, um, a Hispanic theologian named Justo Gonzalez, who said, it is a poor memory that only works one way, only remembering the past and not remembering the future. God is the future that causes all things to exist. God is not the cause that supports all things only, but the future which pulls everything forward. Christmas we think of primarily as a historical moment, and it is. But the Christian year in Advent begins not primarily looking back, but looking forward, being pulled forward, if you will. Christmas is a story... If Christmas is a story that is over and done with, then we could all just read the story on our own time. But Christmas, Advent argues, is about the possibility of hope. Not hope about what was, but hope about what might yet be. We're going to read a passage from Mark that's weird. It goes like this. But in those days after the suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels, gather his chosen from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, from the fig tree. Learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates. Truly I tell you, this generation won't pass away till all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither angels in heaven, not the Son, only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you don't know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey and he leaves home, puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on watch. Therefore keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or at the rooster's crow or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. What I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus and his disciples are at the temple in Jerusalem. It is Passover. And Jerusalem is as busy and as full as any city ever was in the first century A.D. It's the Passover, and this will be Jesus' last. Jesus is teaching, and the Pharisees and the scribes are, 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 are sending in their disciples one after another to test Jesus. He's sitting in the inner court teaching They're sending one person after another to test him, and Jesus avoids all of their traps and says nothing heretical. He finishes teaching. He sits down in the outer court where women and Gentiles were allowed 
to be. There's this beautiful moment in the gospel that isn't a story, but it's sort of this unaccounted for moment where Jesus has finished with the scribes and the Pharisees and he is now sitting alone in the outer court and he's just watching people. He's just people watching as people come into the temple and they put their offerings in the box as they come in and he's watching them put their gifts in. He's sitting there alone, people watching. And he watches the big fancy people come in and put their tithes and their offerings in in ways so that people notice what they're doing. And then he sees a bent woman hobble up to the box and put in two copper coins worth about a penny. And he is so moved by it, sitting there alone, watching her. He watches her put her two coins in and he is encouraged by her faith, I think. And maybe... Maybe a tear comes to his eyes. Mark tells us that he calls the disciples over to him. And the disciples come over to Jesus. And Jesus says, that woman put in more than anyone. That woman put in more than all the rest to account for the whole treasury. Don't be fooled. She gave all she had to live on. And then Jesus stood and let his disciples out of the temple disappointed that they weren't as moved as he was by her faith. The disciples on the way out are marveling at the blocks of the temple. These huge white stone slabs. I got to see it a few years ago when I was in Jerusalem and they are incredible. They're the sort of thing that you just can't imagine building or or creating without a crane. Just huge tons and tons of these beautiful white marble stones laid one on top of another, and the disciples turn and they marvel at it and they say, Jesus, these are, this is incredible, right? How do they do this? It's amazing. And Jesus says, sort of offhand, you know, these stones aren't going to be left one on top of another. I think maybe it's a throwaway line at first. I imagine someone with their child visiting D.C., walking up to the White House, and the child saying, wow, look at that. That is gorgeous. What a beautiful big house. And a parent, someone maybe despondent about the political climate, says something like, well, enjoy it now. That thing's going to burn to the ground. (laughs) Jesus says, well, I'm telling you, these two stones aren't going to be left one on top of another. It's a throwaway line, but it's a prophetic line that he begins to move into. In Mark 13, that's, that's how the chapter opens. And the rest of the chapter is this political rant, or this apocalyptic rant that Jesus goes on about the times that are coming. And in 70 AD, Jesus' prophetic words become true, and the temple is overthrown, and Rome comes in and sacks it. And the religious life of the Jews is changed forever when the temple is overrun. The disciples' question about the temple sends Jesus into an apocalyptic rant that runs through all of Mark 13. He tells them that the temple is going to fall. He tells them that a persecution is certainly coming, tough times ahead. And he tells them about the day of the Lord, which is the section that we read in Mark. He gives them the warning that these things are about to happen. And the entire chapter is incredibly confusing and difficult to discern how exactly 
exactly we're supposed to read it today. It's confusing because there are over a dozen references to Jewish literature. Some of it's references to Old Testament stuff that we can easily pull up. Uh, you know, um, coming on the clouds is from Daniel 7, and the portents in the sky is from Isaiah, and then from Jeremiah, and from Joel. But there are references the fourth Ezra and other Jewish literature that we're just not familiar with. Jesus is pull, reaching into his bag of tricks and pulling out every image before he can to help his disciples understand that tough times are ahead, that things, that things are going to get rough. It's a tricky passage. Last week, Bob talked about, um, it, it was a passage that had a bent of j- judgment and, and, and Bob talked about how Christians have often weaponized these passages about judgment and, and, and in weaponizing them and using them against others, they miss the point of them. That they're always, that if we're using them on other people, we're missing the point that there's something in them that points back at us, that challenges us. Apocalyptic passages like this one that talk about sort of the end times have been weaponized as well. They're used to produce fear rather than hope, which is what I think Jesus is trying to do in this passage. They're used to make people nervous rather than give them peace. Passages like this are often sensationalized and put into timelines by people who are obsessed with the idea that the Bible gives us a clear order of events for the end of the earth and that God is really interested in us figuring it out, which clearly Jesus isn't interested in. Jesus here is concerned with people, and in particular, he's concerned with his disciples and with the church, and in particular, that they will not lose hope. The temple will one day no longer be the same, but stay on your guard. He warns them that there will be persecution, that people will stand against them, but don't be worried that the Son of Man will come And though the world is falling apart all around us, yet in the words of the prophet Malachi, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. So stay alert, keep awake. In other words, do not give up hope. Do not give up hope. It is Passover week and Jesus won't return to the temple. That night will be his final meal with his disciples. And on the day of his crucifixion, they say that the sun stood still and was dark. And it must have felt like the heavens were shaking. But do not be afraid. I wonder if in this last year you lost hope at any time. Or maybe you lost it a long time ago. This year, for a hundred different reasons, it has been hard to find hope. I remember walking by a soapbox preacher in, you know, d- downtown. Um, listening, and he was preaching about the end of the world. He probably was quoting Mark 13. I don't remember exactly what he was saying, but it was this sort of biblical apocalyptic rant about the end of the world and everyone needed to repent. And, um, and you know, there had, been, there had been recent tweets about North Korea and nuclear war, and there had just been an earthquake, and I forget which earthquake had just happened because there were too many this year. And there were fires in California that were making headlines and hurricanes on the East Coast. And that week, the sun was about to literally be blotted out by the moon. Remember that? And I thought to myself, this guy's got some good material. (laughs) 
I mean, it's been a tough year for a lot of people, but for doomsdayers, it's been a great year. (laughs) I remember Paul just like being caught off guard by his message and being like, hold on here. Wait a second. Say that again. Um, It's like, no, come on, come on. The temple is on fire and there are wars and rumor of wars. And a generation of children in Syria who won't know their parents. And homes that have been lost, families that have been broken. And the anxiety of our times presents itself in our guts at unexpected times. And maybe it feels like we are crawling to the finish line of 2017. And the Christian year begins right there. In the place where hope seems like fool's talk. Where God's solutions to problems that are too big seems like fool's talk. A seven-pound child, born to an unwed teen, welcomed by a group of redneck shepherds, grown up to live a vagabond's life and die a criminal's death, seem like petty responses. Advent begins a new year, and I find little reason for optimism. Theologian Miroslav Volf reminds us of the difference between optimism and hope. He writes... Optimism is based on possibilities of things as they have come to be. Hope is based on the possibilities of God, irrespective of how things are. Hope can spring up even in the valley of the shadow of death. Indeed, it is there where it becomes truly manifest. If you want to find hope, you have to go where it has no business being. You won't hear many stories of hope at the fancy cocktail parties this holiday season. You won't hear stories of hope very often in penthouses, but you will hear them on the west side of town, at Breakthrough, at their women's shelter, women who have every reason for despair, yet somehow find the courage and hope and tell me that God's going to make a way, that they're going to apply for one more job, that they're going to try one more time, that they're going to trust one more person, I've probably witnessed hope most powerfully in the time I've spent in Uganda. Perhaps the most hopeful person I know is a man that Sonia and I get to work with. His name is Patrick. He has a fool's hope. When he was 16, he thought he could save all of the homeless kids in Kampala, the capital of Uganda. And so he took 12 of them and he started with them. And soon he had a house, and he was caring for 42 of them. And Sonia and I have gotten to work with him over the last, like, seven, eight years. We try to help him find resources and money to accomplish this fool's hope. And though he had absolutely no resources, and he had never finished high school, he started making plans for something he called the Village of Hope. And it was going to be a 10-acre plot of land, and there was going to be a community center down at the bottom near a well that they were going to dig, and there was going to be four houses for addicted teenage boys, addicted to the fumes of paint. Fumes of paint diminish hunger, and so they sniff stuff to not be hungry at night so they can sleep. And he was going to build four houses, and he was like 19, and he was going to build these houses in this community center, and it was going to be called the Village of Hope, and Sonia and I were trying to raise money for like the 30 kids that he already was caring for. We said, no. We're like 50 sponsors behind what we already have planned. Great plan, but 
It's not going to happen. But Patrick kept talking about it. He kept talking about it and he kept believing that it would happen. The book of Hebrews defines faith as being sure of what you hope for. And he was sure of what he hoped for. And he kept talking about it. And Sonia and I thought it was cute, naive. But Patrick's hope was relentless. And then on a trip, he took me to a plot of land that a man had just given $20,000 to buy. And it was this beautiful, green, lush land. And on the next trip, I came back, and there was a foundation down at the bottom of a hill. And it was going to be the community center. And the next trip, there were two foundations built for the houses. And he kept talking about what was going to happen. He kept saying what his hope was going to produce. And on another trip, the houses existed. And this spring, they're going to finish the community center. And there's a community center and there are two houses there. And I don't know where the money came from. His confidence and faith that what he hoped for could become a reality slowly began to put buildings on a plot of land that he called the village of hope because hope can do real things. It is infectious. And if you're around someone who is hopeful, who keeps speaking about the things that they're hopeful for, those things begin to become a reality. At Advent, we celebrate that God has done something in Christ that pulls us forward into the future. We celebrate the good news that in Jesus, God reveals himself to be for us, and we live with the hope that though the darkness is real, light incomprehensible is the future, and it pulls us forward towards that light. What is the future that God is pulling you into? The future... Of, 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 of your flourishing, that God has made possible in Christ, the hope that pulls you forward this year. What is our future as a community, as a church? What do we need to be talking about more, saying more often, being sure of, that we cannot see it? I don't know. I think this year... At least it will lead us individually and collectively to the margins. Because if you follow Christ's spirit, that's where he brings you. To the margins of our lives, those places that we ignore in ourselves. To the margins of our city and of our neighborhoods. Those places of despair where hope is born. The future is terrifying. And I don't have a ton of optimism. But this, I am praying for hope. And for courage, Christmas, to live in ways that make God's future a reality. I don't want to be paralyzed by fear. I want to be alert and not afraid. I want to be like the woman who puts in two copper coins when it makes more sense to hold on to them. I want to be like her and believe with her that in God's future it will be better to be generous than to be rich. The future is scary, but God is there. And the Christ who came at Christmas will yet come on the clouds with healing in his wings. And at the very least, he will be with you at the painful family dinner that isn't what it used to be. The lonely, dark December night, the 2018 that already makes your stomach bunch a little bit. And I'll close with this quote from Frederick Buechner, who writes, For Christians, hope is ultimately hope in Christ. The hope that he really is what for centuries we've claimed him to be. The hope that despite the fact that sin and death 
still rule the world, he somehow conquered them. The hope that in him and through him, all of us stand a chance of somehow conquering them too. The hope that at some unforeseeable time and in some unimaginable way, he will return with healing in his wings. What keeps the wild hope of Christmas alive year after year in a world notorious for dashing all hopes is the haunting dream that the child who was born that day may yet be born again, ever in us, and our snowbound, snowblind longing for him. Amen.